You know, our whole lives, um, we think of marriage relationships as this, right? And I hope, I hope that you were there. I hope that you're going through that, um, the happily ever after. But sooner or later, the challenges of being married to a unique person set in. In fact, as I was thinking about this message, I was thinking back uh, an event that we did uh, years ago. Uh, it was a Valentine's event, and we should do that again. It was a lot of fun. We'd get together on Valentine's Day and uh, as couples and, and have a special Valentine's event like a sweetheart banquet. And it's something that, that we always enjoyed. And so one year, this was probably, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago now, one year... Um, those who put the event together decided it would be great to have the dating game. Any of you old enough to remember that? (laughs) For those of you that aren't, it was a game where they would have like three bachelors or three bachelorettes and, uh, no, that wasn't, that wasn't it. Is it what's called the dating game? Which is the one they asked the questions? Dude, the newlywed game. Man, I tell you, yes, that's what happens when you get old. Those pathways up there get crossed. It was the newlywed game. And so what they would do is they would have the, the wives uh, uh, go behind stage and then they would have the guys, you know, they would ask them questions and then the spouse would come out and they would answer. And if they got the same answer, then they would get points, right? And then they would, if the, the, the couple that got the most points would win the prize and win the show for the night. So we did that. And so the gals went backstage and, and there was a lot of questions that were asked. But I only remember one. And uh, as my wife went back, they, one of the questions was, which of these three movies best characterizes your relationship? Now, I have to realize, at that time, I was a lot younger. And as a pastor, you gotta, you're on like a pedestal. You've got to have this perfect marriage. And so I'm looking at these titles. I know which one I should say, but I'm thinking, well, it's not perfect, and I'm not going to say that it's terrible, so I picked the title in the middle, right? But bless my bride's heart, when she came out, she didn't have to think twice about it. And she picked the title. Guess what the title was? I don't remember the other titles, or I don't remember what this title was. The title that she picked that described our marriage was the title of the movie, The Perfect Storm. <laughs> The perfect storm. This December, uh, Carol and I will celebrate 28 years of marriage. And I want you to know that it has not been like that video. There have been times and seasons it's been like that. But as a characterization, it has not been anything like that. In fact, it has been the perfect storm. Well, I guess that kind of fits when you put together a a Johnny Bull who's stubborn and bullheaded and a redhead, right? (laughs) You're going to have fireworks. You know, we've not had a perfect marriage, but we have a strong marriage. And this morning, I want to talk to you and I want to encourage you because chances are You're like Carol and I. What was on the video does not picture the reality in your relationship. And so if you're here and you say, my marriage is broken, my marriage is facing struggles and challenges, to you I say welcome. Because the person that's speaking to you knows about those challenges, has made plenty of mistakes, and has failed but has learned some things from God's Word and experience that have made our marriage stronger today than it's ever been before. And so for the next six weeks, as we talk about happily ever after, we're going to take a look at six areas that I would like to say, I can't speak for all couples, but I would like to see that all couples struggle with. 
Uh, today we're going to talk about becoming teammates, working together. Uh, we're going to talk next week about uh, changing your spouse. Uh, we're going to talk the week after that about money, which many say is the number one, uh, one of the number one causes behind divorce. We're going to talk about how kids turn your marriage upside down and the challenges of that. We're going to talk about the physical relationship and, uh, and look at that. And then finally, we're going to talk about in-laws. Anybody that's had in-laws knows of the challenges that are there, even in the best of relationships. So no matter where you are, even if your marriage is at the end of the proverbial rope, this is the last straw. I'm glad you're here. And we've been praying and I've been praying that God would use the things that he's taught me and laid on my heart to help you and make a difference in your life. One of the other advantages that I have as a pastor is that I do a lot of counseling. And those six areas that I mentioned are very frequent issues, amongst many others, that will come up in counseling sessions and in the tensions between a husband and wife. You see, so often, though, when couples walk into my office, they, in a way, are expecting me to be the judge. And as they come in, they come in with the idea of presenting their case in such a way that I would come to the conclusion that their spouse is guilty. Unfortunately, that's not why I'm there. As a counselor, I'm there to bring reconciliation and to to focus on the relationship. But every time, those that come into the counseling room want, the wife comes wanting me to know how bad the husband is, or the husband comes wanting me to know how bad the wife is. And yet the reality is, is that as I listen to their arguments, I can see valid points. But I can also see that from the other side as well. And so my focus becomes one, and it's on your outlines. And by the way, if you have your Bibles, you can open them. We're going to be in Genesis uh, for the teaching portion of my message this morning. Uh, If you've got the the bulletins inside as a teaching outline, and I work hard to put everything that is uh, on the screens on here so that you can have a copy of it, feel free to take that out, feel free to write on it, feel free to make notes. Uh, That's yours uh, to, to use in whatever way is beneficial and profitable for you. But my, my focus as a counselor, as a pastor, is that, is this. And it's there on your teaching outlines. Go ahead and fill in the blank. Loving relationships are built on fostering, what does it say there? Understanding. Not what? Help me out here. What does it say? Not what? Winning arguments. And the emphasis this morning as we talk about making my marriage a win-win is is the focus of putting down our swords and working together to foster understanding rather than proving to our spouse that we are right. One marriage author... He actually has written a book uh, called The Four Seasons of Marriage. And in that book, he, he talks about marriages as being in the springtime, kind of like what have, might have been happening here when you were first married. It's about a two-year period where you're living in the spring and, and summer of the relationship. But then what he found in his research is, is that the majority of couples no longer live in the spring and summer seasons of their marriage, but rather would be in the fall and the winter. You see, a winter marriage, and I quote, he says this, is when their marriage is characterized by anger, disappointment, loneliness, negativity, discouragement, and frustration. Their relationships are detached, cold, 
harsh, and bitter. They feel alone and betrayed. And those that are still married hunker down in the igloo of winter, hoping for spring. But the sad reality is for many, spring never comes. Almost every marriage begins in the spring. As you date, as you are newly married, your minds and hearts are filled with what the wonderful life together is going to look like. Your chief goal and desire is to please your spouse and to to make them happy and And this wonderful season of spring and summer is a time of togetherness. But eventually, whether it happens slowly or quickly, you you begin to move through the seasons of summer and and into fall and, and into winter. Some have gone straight to the winter season. So... How do, you, how do you get there? The number one reason why most couples drift into these latter seasons is because they fail to or don't know how to deal with conflict. And it's unresolved conflict that just comes out of who you are. Think about this for a moment. Think about the person you married and how different they are than you. They may be, they're of a different gender. There's differences there. How they were raised, their home life, their their family. Uh, There are are differences in their upbringing. The, The things that they have experienced in life, the things that they have learned. In, in my home, living in America, I, I've had a privilege of, of engaging in water sports and learned how to swim and am comfortable in the water. My wife, who grew up in India, did not have those opportunities because they didn't exist. And, and so that becomes a, a difference in our life experience. There's differences in personality. Some, some of us are, are introverted. Some of us are extroverts. Uh, there are differences there. It can be a difference of culture. Uh, you know, there's a difference between the culture on the West Coast and the culture where my wife is from and a difference of the culture on the East Coast. And in fact, there's a difference in, 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 in the social class that I grew up in. My father was a, was a, was a steelwright. He was a mill worker, United States Steel. And, and my wife grew up in a, in a home of godly parents that were missionaries in India. You see these differences... These uniquenesses which we celebrate when we come together become the basis for conflict. And it goes on to include education and a myriad of other issues that when we're not careful, they begin to grow into divisiveness. And here's the thing that I've noticed as a pastor and as a counselor. Most of us don't have the tools You know what I'm talking about, tools. We don't have the training. We don't have the knowledge. We've never been prepared in a culture that focuses on conflict avoidance in how to resolve conflict. And as a result, as the author reminds us, when conflict is unresolved, we begin to drift into fall and winter. And then the hopeless outcome usually results in two outcomes. The first outcome is, is that you just accept it. And you live in a hopeless and lonely marriage relationship. Or as is most more common even today, is you dissolve the marriage with the hope that in the future you're going to find somebody that's more compatible. I believe that there's a third option, and that's why 
we're doing this series. And it is this, that couples that learn to resolve conflict can reverse or stop the drift and can move from the winner marriage relationship back into spring and summer. That's why I've titled this message, Making My Marriage a Win-Win. I would encourage you to open your Bibles now or to look at the outlines. But in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, the book of the creation account, we learn several foundational truths about marriage, about my marriage, Carol's and my marriage, and about you and your spouse's marriage. Because it's here in the, the first book of Genesis that God reveals creation. And in this account, he reveals the creation of man and the establishment of marriage. And I realize there's a lot of discussion today uh, on these issues and definitions, but as a person that is committed to teaching the Bible, that's what you're going to hear this morning. And I want you just to listen to me. And what we see in Genesis chapter 1 It's an overview. God begins with nothing and reveals how over six days he creates everything in a literal 24-hour day and on the seventh day he rests. But then when you get to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, what you find is that God then takes a step back and says, I want to focus in on something more specific. I want to focus on the creation of man, the responsibility I've given to him, and the institution of of marriage. And so if you got your teaching outline, just follow along because in Genesis 2, 5, and 6, we see that God creates this beautiful garden. It says there in verses 5 and 6, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the fields had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And then as we skip down over some of the other details, that events that are happening in verse 7, we see that the first man is created. By the way, we call the first man, anybody know what we call the first man? Four-letter word, four-letter name, begins with an A, and was an M, right? What is it? Adam. Actually, it's the Hebrew word Adam for man. So the name Adam is the Hebrew word for man, Adam, or as we call it, Adam today. In verse 7, look at that verse with me. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And God had a special job for man. In fact, we know that man is different than, than every other animal that God created because Man is the only one that he breathed the breath of life into. Man is the only one that is made in the image and likeness of God. And and as we skip down, we get a picture of what man's responsibility was. Look with me at verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to do what? What does it say there? Help me out here. Come on, get engaged here. Don't let me do all the talking. To what? Work it. How many of you believe that work is a, is a sin? It's part of the curse, right? <laughs> it sure seems like that sometimes. Actually, side note here, work is part of God's design for us. It's sin that has twisted and tangled it and distorted it so that work is not enjoyable and fulfilling. But we see that God's responsibility for man was to to work the garden, was to, to take care of it, to keep it. To, he, God placed human responsibility on Adam's shoulder and mankind's shoulder uh, for responsibility of, of taking care of his creation. And now we get to verse 18. And let's read this together. Can we get this on the screen? Read this with me. Just say it with me. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit, fit, fit for him. Sorry about that. I want to stop. If you know anything about the first six days of creation, 
After God finished each of the days, he said, it is good. It is good. It is good. But as we dive into the creation of man now in this breakout section, uh, and we look at the sixth day, as God looked at Adam, he said, "Uh uh-oh, we got a problem here, Houston. It is not good. It's not good. And, and why is it not good? Why did God say this? Well, if you look at the verse, it tells us right there. He didn't think that it was good that man was a what? What's the A word there? Alone. He did not think that it was good for man to be alone. Go ahead and circle that word. Uh, by the way, just kind of a interesting tidbit, I don't know if it's any worth, but the word alone is spelled... B in Hebrew, it's spelled B A D. <laughs> bad. <laughs> For man to be alone is bad. Anyways, you won't forget that now. But what this word for alone speaks of, it means to be separate, it means to be isolated, it means to be lonely. As God created everything, as he creates Adam, the first man, and breathes life into him, making him in his image, as he looks at him, there in the garden in this perfect world, he says, this is not good. It's not good for man to be isolated. It's not good for man to be separated. It's not good for man to be lonely. It's interesting, the the picture in in Psalm 102, verse 7. Give me the next verse on this when you find that. It's a verse where this word alone is used in another place. It provides a powerful illustration and picture for it. The psalmist says, I lie awake and I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. The picture here of, of, of being alone is that lonely sparrow, isolated and alone. And God says... That's not good. But we have to dig a little bit deeper because there's more meaning here. What what does it mean to be alone? I mean, think about it. Adam was not really alone in the widest sense of the term. I mean, think about it. He had a relationship with God, right? So he wasn't alone in the sense that he had a relationship with God. He also had man's best friend, right? He had the animals. I don't know if he had a puppy or not, but maybe he did, right? Maybe he had a kitty cat. I don't know, maybe he had a lizard. I I don't know. (laughs) But the point was, he could have had a companion in in a pet. So in what sense... Is Adam alone? And here it is, is that he was alone and that there was no equal that he could share his life with. Think about that for a moment. Think about the importance of relationships from God's perspective. Think about the importance of of marriage from God's perspective. And as God looks at this situation of Adam standing there by himself, he states, this is not good. And what's God's solution? God says, take me to the next verse. God says, I'm going to make a helper suitable or fit for him. God's focus was to provide a companion. Now, God wasn't talking about bringing along a servant here. He's not talking about somebody that would fix the meals, mend the fence, milk the cows, wash the clothes, and serve Adam. No, no, that's not what the word helper says. In fact, on your outlines, you have this this definition. A servant, I mean, a helper is a person who contributes to the fulfillment of a need or a furtherance of an effort of purpose. This word here is used 
of, of helper is used. Go to the next slide. As helper is used ten times in the Bible. It's used ten times in the Bible. Two times it's used here in Genesis 2 to speak about the companion that God was going to create for Adam. And in the particular sense that this, this word is used, the eight other times, you know who it speaks of? It speaks of God's commitment to you. God's commitment to you. Give me, the, give me the verse in Psalm 121, verse 1. The psalmist says this, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my what come? Help. Help. And, and these references of, of help are talking about God as being a helper. Why am I taking time on this? Because in order for us to, to, to break out of the winter marriages, we have to realize is that our spouse is, is God's gift to us, is a companion, is a, is a partner in ministry, is, is one that God has created just for us. You see this beautiful picture of God coming alongside and providing what we lack is a beautiful picture of God's design for the marriage relationship. And God even gets more specific. Let's go to the next slide. God gets even more specific when he says that this helper would be fit for him. What's interesting about this this phrase, fit for him, just kind of stay with me and track on this. This is important stuff. Is that what God is saying is that the word literally means to be like or opposite. Now, you're sitting there thinking, Pastor Joe, what have you been smoking this morning? What does that mean? Like or opposite? And, and, and this verse, this word, is not talking about identity. It's not necessarily talking about that Eve had a head, right? It's not talking about the fact she had two arms and two legs, two eyes, a nose, and a mouth. It's not necessarily talking about identity, but what it is speaking of, it's speaking of that she complimented Adam. Did you catch that? Uh, Today we might use the term partner or teammate. The idea is of two that as they come together are better than when they are alone. You see, where Adam is weak, Eve will be strong. And where Eve is weak, Adam will be strong. And so as the two come together, they are better than one because they complement each other. And by design, as God looks at Adam and says, it's not good for him to be alone, he says, I am going to create a help me, a helper for you that will complement you, that will make you better than you could be by yourself. If you're in the winter of relationships, you probably are having a hard time grasping that right now. But it's true, and it's God's design for your relationship. And so uh, as the text moves on, we see God gives Adam a little bit of on-the-job training to help him see his need. He has Adam go out and name all the animals, and, and uh, God brings all the animals. Maybe it was like Noah on the ark brought him two by two, male and female. I don't know. It doesn't say. But the point was, after Adam named all the animals, he realized... There was no mate for him. There was nobody compatible for him. And so then what God does is God does surgery. He causes a sleep to to come upon Adam, and he takes his rib, and out of the rib he fashions the woman, Eve. And uh, the famous Bible commentator, uh, Matthew Henry, says this on this passage. He says this, and I think this is a great quote. The woman was made of, the, of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. My friends, that is God's design for the marriage relationship. 
And after the creation of the woman, then God holds the very first marriage ceremony. And we read about it in Genesis 2, 24, where he brings Eve to Adam. And it's there that God gives a little sermonette in verse 24 where it says this, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, when the verse, there's three statements made here. The first says the man will leave. Well, this is not necessarily speaking of, it's not necessarily a geographic statement. It's speaking about location. Now, sometimes that's very helpful in a relationship for a couple to move into a different location so they can work on their relationship free from the influence of parents. That can be very profitable, but that's not what this verse is saying because in the Hebrew culture, the way that it was set up, the son would take his new wife and they would come and they would live in the home that would be expanded for the family. So when it talks about the man will leave, it's not talking about a geographic separation from his parents. Nor is it speaking about an emotional abandonment of his parents. It's not talking about being free from the responsibility that God gives to us, another message for another time, of caring for our parents. It's not even a matter of rejecting the position of being a son. But what it does speak to is the change of priority. The change of priority that the husband's priority and focus would be upon his relationship with his wife. In fact, that relationship would take priority over all others. When it talks about there, then he would hold fast to his wife. This is speaking about passion and permanence. Literally, the word literally means to glue or stick together. Years ago, I tell the story, I was remodeling a house that had T-111 siding on it. And on the front of it were these beautiful fake shutters. And as we were knocking out the wall to put in a bay window, I thought it would be nice to save those shutters. The problem was is that the shutters were glued with construction glue to the siding. And the particle board wave in the shutters only resulted, removing it only resulted in a mess. As I stuck my pry bar behind there, a part of the shutter would pop off with the glue and a part of the T-111 siding. And then there would be a part of the T-111 siding that would be left with the glue and a part of the shutters. And the picture here of holding fast is, is not only of passion but of permanence. It's about being literally stuck and glued together. That's why when you go through a separation, there is so much emotional pain that comes. It's because of the gluing that takes place. And then finally, we see it speaks of the one relationship, the one flesh relationship. And this does include the physical relationship. It does include emotional and the spiritual relationship. But but what you need to get here, it's talking about a blood relationship. And this ties into where we're going. Just hang with me. Hang with me. You see... In the the, the Old Testament, when somebody was flesh and and blood, they were family. They they were part of your family. They They were kin. They were people that you had a biological connection with. And in that culture, you took care of each other. Your commitment, whether you agreed or not, was to stand with your family and to stand together and to look out for one another. And this one flesh relationship means is that when this woman joined this man, she now became family. Do you catch where this is all going? Do you catch the importance on relationship and the significance of this? It it really lays an incredible foundation. And in fact, if you go through the text and look, you can can see that, that Adam needed help. He needed a companion for the responsibilities that God had given to him. Let's walk through these real quick. Go ahead and type these down real quick. Let's go. The first one is family. Give me that one, Adam. In Genesis 1.28, God said, Bless them and, and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You know what that's talking about? That's talking about little Adams and Eves, right? That's what it's talking about. God says, I want you to have kids. 
and I want you to populate the earth, and I want you to manage it. It's, is that, you know what? It's hard parenting alone. It's, it's, it's hard parenting with both spouses. But it takes teamwork to, to parent. And, and, and the strengths that a dad might bring cover the weaknesses that mom has. And the, and the strengths that a mom has covers the weaknesses of a dad. He then goes on to talk about, and this is all mixed through all of these, but the next one is about work and life. You, you know, we, we have to provide for ourselves. We have to provide housing and clothing and food. And there's cars that have to be fixed and, and kids that have to be run to sporting events and, and uh, refrigerators that have to be replaced and, and many things that have to happen. And we see here in Genesis 2.15 when, uh, when the bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. There was no man to work the ground. The Lord took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. We talked about that already. The third one is worship and obedience. In Genesis 2.16 and 17, God basically commanded Adam, said, listen, hey dude, you can eat from anything in the garden you want. This one tree is off limits. It was a test of obedience. It was a test of worship. Are you going to listen to me, put me first? And you know what? It's easier to worship and be obedient when your spouse is with you on this. And then finally is mutual support. And that's what we just looked at, that idea of sharing life together. Unfortunately, we learn in the next chapter that Adam and Eve's disobedience would mess everything up. Sin would enter the world. Sin would enter their relationships. There would be consequences, and I don't have time to deal with that. But but as a result, what God had intended and designed was broken. It was compromised. It was not everything that God intended it to be. This wall here illustrates to one degree or another my marriage and your marriage. These blocks represent issues of disagreement. I scanned the internet, looked at a bunch of sites that had the 10 causes for conflict in relationships, the 10 causes for divorce. It was interesting that all 10 of the lists were different. So we've got a list of about 16 items here. There may be some others that, that you've wrestled with here. But what happens in our lives is that when we're first married, there's no bricks. Uh, there's bricks, potential bricks coming because of our uniqueness, but there's no wall. There's no wall. But what happens after a period of time is that there's an issue where, where we disagree. Let's pick on this one. And so, in our marriage relationship, because there's two sets of parents, they both want us for a holiday. And one spouse wants to go be with her family, and the other spouse wants to be with his family. That leads to conflict. You see, at the root of all conflict, at the root of all conflict are expectations. And when those expectations are not met, conflict results. And so if the wife is planning to go visit, spend time with her family over Christmas, and the husband's planning to go with his, guess what happens? You have a fight. At least in our house, that's how it would work. Maybe you guys are better than us, bless you. Right? And guess what? Christmas comes every year, doesn't it? And guess what happens every year? We have a fight over where we're going to go. Unresolved conflict. doesn't go away. You can't sweep it under the rug. And even if a decision is made, what happens? One spouse is hurt while the other spouse feels satisfied that they got what they wanted. But in the process, the relationship suffers, doesn't it? And so 
When you treat conflict in your life like you're going to court before a judge and you're trying to convince your spouse of how foolish they are and how correct they are, what, uh, there's only a handful of results that could happen. One is you win and they lose. But let me tell you something. When you win and they lose, as you know, that doesn't help the relationship. It doesn't bring you together. It pushes you apart. The other result is you lose and they win. And that's no fun either. Or you may say, well, we both came to a draw. But you know what happens there when you come to a draw? Both spouses lose. And nobody's happy. And in the case of visiting the in-laws over the holiday, you just wait to next year. And as the argument comes up, you recycle what you've already said. You may add words to it. You may say it louder. The point is you're trying to press your point to make your case. And somebody wins, somebody loses, or both you lose. And as a result, the conflict is unresolved. And your marriage begins to drift from spring and summer into fall and winter. But something else happens is in your relationship, and that's what this wall pictures, is that when you fail to deal with conflict, these bricks begin to pile up. And the husband stands on one side of this wall and the wife stands on the other side of the wall. And before long, there's a barrier between you. You see... You can talk about the weather. You might be able to talk about the kids' schooling. You might be, able to, might be even willing to talk about a job. But, because those holes are open and you can communicate, but when it comes to talking about Christmas, there's going to be a fight. When it comes talking about maybe drinking or partying, there'll be a fight. When it comes to talk about friends, guess what? There's a fight. And so the two of you stop communicating. And as a process, these bricks build up. And a wall is built in your relationship. So the challenge of conflict relationship resolution is to remove the bricks. Is to resolve the conflict and work out a solution so that the in-laws no longer are a barrier between you. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, is I want to talk about resolving conflict and how to do that. You see, what built this wall was something that drew you together with your spouse in the very beginning, and that was their uniqueness. But over time, that uniqueness, if you don't work at it, becomes a barrier between you. I can tell you that in 28 years of marriage, Carol and I have built a wall. And we have to work at it. Even this week, we had a fight over something insignificant. And, and we didn't resolve the conflict. And so what happens is that potentially there's another block that is added to the wall. You see, instead of being pushed together, you are pushed apart and in the few just minutes we have left, I want to give you four general principles to work on. By the way, let me just say this. Sometimes the wall is so formidable that you don't know where to start or what to do. And that's where a counselor comes in. Because a counselor, in essence, sits on the wall and helps you to develop the tools that trains you to be able to discuss how do we resolve this conflict and how do we move forward. In fact, there's nothing wrong with counseling. It's a wonderful thing. And smart couples that are struggling, if they're at a place where they can't 
do this themselves, seek outside help because of the importance of their relationship. Let's move through this application real quick. The first thing that you got to do is you got to learn to listen to your spouse. And I'm not talking about the pause, waiting for them to take a breath so that you can interject your next argument. I'm talking about genuinely listening to what they're saying, listening for their heart. What is really being communicated here? And you need to, you need to respond, and this question on the bottom is so powerful, so so what I hear you saying is this. In one of the books I'm reading, in fact, it's the title book for this series I've been using kind of as a rough outline, he shares the story about a couple that came in and they were fighting, they were fighting over the color of the bathroom. The husband wanted the bathroom blue and the wife wanted the bathroom painted green. He said, they told him, they said, bet you never had anybody come to a marriage counselor over the color of the bathroom. <laughs> well, really, they were coming over conflict resolution. And the two of them were dead set. They wanted it their way. But in the process, they failed to listen to each other. All they were thinking about is making their point and getting their way of them winning the argument rather than building the relationship. That leads to the second thing you got to do. You got to strive for understanding. You got to strive for understanding. I've been involved in a lot of different situations. God has blessed me in life and a lot of counseling. And as I mentioned earlier, I can listen to one spouse share what, what, what they're frustrated about or what the issue is, and I can, and I can see the points. And I could say to them, I, I understand why you feel that way. But then as I listen to the other spouse share their viewpoint, I could understand why they feel that way as well. You, you see, painting the bathroom blue or green isn't a moral issue, and most of the stuff we fight over isn't a matter of right and wrong. It's about difference. It's about uniqueness. The, the conflict and the tension isn't over a, one way or the other. It could be both, and both would be acceptable. And so you have to work for understanding and, and to, to, to listen to this and And one of the greatest things you can say to your spouse is, I understand why you feel that way. And I'm not talking about uh, just saying it. I'm talking about genuinely meaning, okay, I can see why you would want the the bathroom to be painted blue. That's your favorite color. Okay, but I I really want it painted green. And, 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 And when you begin to understand each other, it opens the door to then to begin to work out the third thing here. Write this down as a resolution. Part of conflict resolution is working out a solution. So what happened in the story of the blue and green bathroom? Well, they talked about painting it a color that was maybe like an aqua blue that was in the middle. That would be a compromise, right? But neither of them would be happy with that, would they? And so the counselor said, well, maybe you could paint one wall one color and the other walls another color. And so that's what they did. And what a testimony to their friends that came in and said, boy, I've never seen a bathroom painted two different colors. (laughs) And they could say, you know what? That's part of the resolution that we worked out in working through this issue. You see, the simple reality is is that if we're going to move from winter to spring, we have to lay down our swords. And we have to realize, as God intended it, that our spouse is a complement for us. They are unique, and we need to work together. We need to begin by listening. We need to strive for understanding, and we need to work out a resolution. And you know what happens when you do that? There's harmony that comes. It's a win. Worship team, get ready. There's a win-win scenario. Listen, if you've been married for any length of time, more than likely, you're no longer in the summer or the spring season. You're in the fall and the winter. And you can put the details in to the things that I've been talking about. I guess this morning as we come together, the first step is saying, you know what? I'm going to begin to learn how to resolve conflict. I'm going to begin to learn how to communicate with my spouse and listen to them. 
I'm going to try to put myself in their shoes and understand things from their perspective, and I'm trusting that they're going to do the same so that we're able to then come together as a team and work out a solution so that it's not me winning and her losing or her winning and me losing or a draw where we both lose, but rather we come up with a solution where we can agree. And as a result, instead of the relationship being pushed further apart, you can be brought closer together. So here's the question this morning, the challenge. I've got a couple challenges for you. The first one is this. Are you committed to work with your teammate? Yes or no? Are you committed to take what we've learned this morning and begin to put into practice? It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be perfect. But to work with your spouse. The next thing I want to encourage you to do is I want to encourage you to make a commitment to attend the next five weeks. Because we're going to talk about changing our spouse. We're going to talk about kids. We're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about in-laws. Those are the big six that probably all of us have dealt with. One of them, many of them, if not all of them. And we're going to look at those as we move forward. Would you make a commitment this morning to do that? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the text this morning. I just thank you for the truth of your word. I just, I just thank you for how you designed the husband and wife relationship to be. And I know that we can obtain that. We can get there in our relationships. Lord, I know there's a lot more that I wasn't able to say that needs to be said, but I trust that you'll take the truths that we've looked at, speak into our lives especially about the point that our spouse is not our enemy. Help us to begin to treat each other like teammates. Father, help us to move from the loneliness, from the bitterness, from the resentment, the frustration of a winter marriage. Help us to begin to take steps to move into the spring once again. We know what it was like. It was wonderful. Take us to that place not only through the things we hear this morning, but through the issues that we look at over the next six weeks. Lord, work in our hearts and lives. Work in our relationships. Help us to be willing to take the first step in changing. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. I want to thank you for coming this morning. We're going to stand and sing a closing song. Our men are going to come and receive our offering. And if you feel led to give to the Ministry of Living Hope, you're welcome to do that, but you're by no means obligated. But I would encourage you to have filled out the response card. If there is a need in your life that you have or a prayer request, go ahead and put that down. Allow me to pray specifically for you uh, and your need. If you need to talk to me, if you're at a place where you need some help kind of working through the wall, I'm available to meet with you. And uh, talk to me, email me, call me, uh, put it on the blue cards, and we will follow up with you. So let's go ahead and stand and sing this last song. Uh, Any tear-offs, your response cards can go in the offering baskets as the men bring them by. Let's sing.